This episode is brought to you by ShipBob, the global leader in e-commerce fulfillment with locations across North America, Europe, and the United Kingdom. ShipBob offers direct integration to merchants running on Shopify, Wix, BigCommerce, WooCommerce, Amazon, eBay, and Walmart. And they are the only 3PL that is Shopify Plus certified. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. This episode is brought to you by Nosto, the world's leading commerce experience platform. Nosto enables personalized shopping experiences without the need for IT resources or a long implementation process. Stay tuned for a special offer exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. This episode is brought to you by Malomo. Malomo offers Shopify and Klaviyo customers the tools to turn shipping from a cost center into a profitable marketing channel through branded shipment emails and order tracking pages. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 59 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green. And today I spoke with Ashwarya Iyer, the founder and CEO of Brightland. Brightland is a modern pantry essentials brand made on a family run farm in California's central coast. Brightland offers authentic olive oils and fruit forward vinegars with a traceable supply chain and elevated design. In this episode, Ashwarya shares with us her journey from growing up in Houston, Texas, to working at L'Oreal in the luxury products division at Lancome, to working in fintech and venture capital, to realizing that she was getting stomach aches from the olive oil she was using at home, which inspired her to create Brightland. She talks with us about the lessons she's learned along the way in building her business, how the brand celebrates artists with each new flavor, and why empathy is her greatest leadership quality. Tune in to hear all of this and more. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us an awesome review. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Ashwarya. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I'm super excited to hear your story in building Brightland. Thanks for your time and joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really jazzed to be here. Awesome. So let's uh, talk a little bit about your childhood, what it was like growing up, if you were entrepreneurial back then or not. If, were there any early signs? Yeah, I, uh, I was born in India, then we immigrated to the States when I was six months old. I grew up in Houston, Texas, in a pretty like typical kind of first-generation immigrant family. They wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer, something super safe, and that was the kind of the only path that was in front of me. My grandfather, my mom's father in India, was actually a very like successful entrepreneur, but it was never a path that I saw for myself 
I always tell people now that I think that I'm living the biggest version of my life because what I thought that I would become was like an eye doctor that lived in my parents' neighborhood. Like I had even picked out a house and thought that the office would be around the corner from like my high school. Like I just was thinking so small and it wasn't until I, when I moved to New York city to, to kind of, um, to go to school that everything kind of shifted for me. But, but yeah, I grew up in a very, in a family that loved to cook food was our is, was, and is our like love language and, um, a way to kind of also talk about our kind of my Indian heritage. And, um, that also obviously transferred eventually, you know, kind of that love for food into what I'm doing now. That's awesome. And so when you say when you moved to New York, um, well, first off, you moved, I guess, for NYU to attend. Is that how you got to New York? Yes. Awesome. And so when you were at NYU, what kind of switched for you? What was that shift from, you know, maybe wanting to be doctor, lawyer to entrepreneur? I mean, I think it was just the uh, realization that there's so much more out there. I think it was the understanding of, you know, when you're in New York, People are, have you ever lived in New York or have you? Yep. I lived in New York for almost 10 years. So yes. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it is, it is filled with, New York is filled with the most driven and incredible creative, like just kind of the most tenacious people mm-hmm. and people who are just really unafraid and unapologetic about themselves. So I think it was all of those things together, seeing people at the top of their game, do things in an incredible way. That wasn't the norm. You know, I met, like, I, I also got to do a ton of internships. Like New York is the place where when you're in college, you can intern anywhere you want. I interned with the New York city council. I interned with, you know, a few PR firms. I interned at a market research polling firm. I interned at L'Oreal. I mean, I did all kinds of things. And I think that that really cemented for me that there's so much more out there. So how do you choose when there's so many options? I had no idea. You know, I knew that one thing that I knew though, I loved this concept of brand. I couldn't explain why at the time I remember like hearing mutterings about like what it worked, what it feels like to work at a, or what it's like to work at a branding agency. I thought that was really interesting, but, um, ended up at L'Oreal and that was such a wonderful at Lancome specifically. And that was such a wonderful foray into CPG into understanding how they think about like naming a product, how they think about marketing a product. Um, and you know, mind you, this was, you know, 2008, 2009. So we were still asking the question like, Hey, there's this channel, YouTube, like, is that relevant? Or like, should we put up a Facebook page for Lancome? And that was like a hugely debated thing actually. Um, so in any case, that was, a that for me was a nice foundation into, into what CPG world could look like. Are there any takeaways you have from that experience, you know, working with Lancome um, that has helped you in your journey in building a brand today? Definitely. I mean, when I, so, you know, I worked at Lancome and then I made a pivot and went into tech and was working at like fintech startups. So made a complete kind of 180 in terms of the, the, the discipline I was in. But when I was researching and sort of like in the early stages with Brightland, my mind kept going back to those days at Lancome. And I was thinking about how they thought about naming products, even product photography at the time, even though, you know, the world has evolved so much since how they talked about benefits 
like it would be like the same lipstick, but they would be able to talk about it in such an incredible way and talk about the benefits, talk about the moisture, you know, the moisture rich kind of capture in, on your lips, on your skin. So all of that was so, I think like really ended up becoming instrumental in how I thought about Brightland. And when you say it's the second time you said that they've, how they think about naming, how do they think about naming? How would you describe that? Yeah, I think that it's just more creative, honestly. It's not just saying, oh, this is another like rosy pink. Like they would evoke, you know, whether it's the title of a book or a movie or create emotion, nostalgia, memory, something. So mm -hmm. I think that's how we think about naming our own products too. What's an example of that at Brightland? Yeah, I mean, our hero products are called Awake and Alive. Um, one of our, our most recent product that we launched is a garlic olive oil that's called Rosette. And it's named, it's an ode to garlic's kind of moniker, um, as well as the fact that the bulb kind of looks like rose petals. Mm. Um, so there's there's kind of multiple multiple meanings and a bit more layered. Um, yeah. And, and that was definitely for me influenced by my time at Lancome. That's awesome. So what happened after your time at Lancome? You said you started working in fintech. Why did you jump to fintech? What was the interest or um, reason there? It was a recession. So uh, with the recession, it was this realization of like, okay, we knew, everyone I knew got laid off. We all just needed jobs. And so there was a company doing some interesting stuff in the fintech space and jumped there and um, got to be, that was my first foray in working at a venture-backed tech startup. And so many lessons, you know, joined at 30 people, left when we were 230. Um, and that was over the course of just a couple of years. So the, just the sheer number of like lessons in terms of growth and speed and being nimble and getting things done really quickly, you know, that was so that was really eye-opening. And I think I apply a lot of like our kind of nimbleness and speed that those, those lessons have completely applied. Yeah. I mean, working at a high growth startup is definitely a, a very different experience. I'm sure than working at a company such as L'Oreal or Lancome, yes, <laughs> a different type of structure. Um, so what happened after that, you kind of learned what it was like to be part of a rocket ship. And then, you know, from there, where'd you go? I decided that I wanted to spend some time on the VC side um, and kind of get a get a glimpse into a number of different companies. So went to a venture firm, spent some time there, but realized that I actually, <laughs> the takeaway for me was I actually love operating. I love being like, up, you know, in the weeds of a company and be a part of that growth rather than sit on the sidelines or cheer from the sidelines. And mm -hmm. so, um, that's when we moved to California and I joined a, a kind of a mobile startup, mobile technology company and um, kind of similar, like had raised a lot of money and, you know, saw the like kind of the ups and downs. But along that time, you know, this was about like year, year eight of living in New York, year nine. That's when I realized that um, I kept, I started cooking more and both my partner and I kept getting stomach aches. And at first we thought it was bread, we thought it was cheese. So we were cutting things out. And eventually, and this was like 2015, eventually the only constant that was left was the um, cooking oil we were using. And in our case, it was olive oil. So mm. did a little bit of research and found out that the majority of the olive oil that Americans are consuming is 
either rotten or rancid or it's been adulterated, like cut with palm oil or canola oil. And like 60 Minutes has done a piece on this. You know, the, the Italian mafia is apparently involved. Like there's just such a wild like story that made no sense, but was very intriguing. So I started researching it more. And then when we moved to California, the year after, I started visiting olive farms, just, you know, kind of out of my own curiosity. I told a couple of friends I was interested and they were like, oh, there's amazing farms right here. And that truly like set me down the kind of the origins and the, the story. So what was that aha moment when you realized, okay, this is what I want to do. I want to build a brand around olive oil. It took me a long time. It was like two and a half, three years in the making because I, I didn't believe in myself, you know, like I was like, oh, well, why me? I'm not some famous restaurateur or chef, or I didn't go to HBS. Like, you know, why should I build this? So I kind of like shoved it away for a while, but eventually, you know, it took my own, like, just kind of digging into like why I had this fear or kind of like working it through with my own inner critics. So it was a lot of like kind of deep work that I had to do to then be like, you know what, I, I'm going to, you know, try this and do this. So what kind of deep work did you have to do? Cause I think that this is, um, you know, I'm sure a lot of people listening can relate. Um, maybe they're yeah. thinking of an idea and they've got a lot of self doubt. So yeah. what does that work entail? For me, I mean, it's for each person, it's individual, so you can't prescribe anything like that. But for me, it was reading a lot of books around inner critic. And the best one is Silencing Your Inner Critic by Hal Stone. Can't highly recommend it enough. Um, it involved working with a coach for a few months who really pushed me to, you know, do the things that I used to laugh about, like creating vision boards and really like writing out what you think your life purpose is. And, you know, it, it sounds all very like, kind of la-di-da, but, you know, when you put pen to paper in that way and when you're intentional in that way, it's pretty powerful what your brain can end up kind of like manifesting or at least pushing you in that direction. So again, not for everybody, but these are the things that worked for me that provided a good shift of like, okay, here's... We'll get right back to our show, but first, a word from our sponsors. ShipBob is a tech-enabled 3PL that offers simple, fast, and affordable fulfillment. Unlike most 3PLs that lack sophisticated intuitive tools and use outdated methods, ShipBob's technology is modern, intelligent, and designed to give you full transparency over your backend operations. Fulfillment is incredibly time-intensive, so just hand it over to the best of the best. With a network of fulfillment centers across the globe with new locations continuously underway, ShipBob lets you split inventory across locations to reduce shipping costs and transit times. Get your products picked, packed, and shipped, and earn $500 in free shipping credits by going to shipbob.com slash stairway to CEO. That's shipbob.com slash stairway to CEO. Nasto enables e-commerce brands to deliver personalized digital shopping experiences at every touchpoint across every device. Designed for ease of use, Nasto empowers brands to build, launch, and optimize one-to-one omnichannel marketing campaigns and digital experiences without the need for dedicated IT resources or a lengthy implementation process. Leading brands in over 100 countries use Nasto to grow their business and delight their customers. As a Stairway to CEO listener, you can take advantage of an exclusive 10% discount off your first six months. 
Learn more or request a demo by going to nosto.com slash stairway to CEO. That's N-O-S-T-O dot com slash stairway to CEO. Malomo is on a mission to help brands create lasting relationships with their customers. Did you know that the average customer tracks their shipments around four to five times per order? That's a lot. Why not use that time with excited customers to drive sales and build your brand with a tool like Malomo? With Malomo, you can use branded shipment emails and order tracking pages to drive additional purchases by showing new products, sales, subscription options, and other engaging content, all while cutting support tickets by 50%, simply by being proactive and managing delivery communications. Get 30% off your first three months with Malomo today by going to gomalomo.com slash stairway to CEO. That's gomalomo, G-O-M-A-L, omo.com slash steroid CEO. I think I want to go. Right. I mean, our thoughts really do create our reality. So being able to make that shift takes a lot of work and time. And it's awesome that you, you know, are open to sharing that story and, you know, telling us how you were able to kind of transform. So now that you, you know, you two to three years in the making, what are those two to three years in the making mean? What were you doing? Were you going to a bunch of farms? Were you working with designers yet? Can you kind of talk about um, kind of how you work to prepare to launch Brightland? It was a mix of all of that. You know, it was everything from talking to so many entrepreneurs who would give me the time of day, who I'm still like very grateful to, to because they just did not need to do that, but they would answer my inane questions. It was doing tons and tons of Googling and research. It was visiting farms. It was taking classes around olive oil, you know, whether it was online classes, going to the UC Davis Olive Center, um, which is a real place and it's pretty <laughs> magical. Um, and yeah, it was also coming to terms with like, you know, what what direction are we going to take this, this company? And for me, it was this... Um, I had felt strongly about bootstrapping to start, prove out product market fit, and then if it makes sense, do some sort of raise. So once I figured that out, it was like, okay, well, I have this much money that I'm going to put in. I got to make this money last and like make it work, like get to launch and beyond. And so that was a really actually a nice way for me to say, okay, here's, here's my budget. So I know, and here's what I can put into, you know, branding, for example, or design. And then it was also a matter of like taking a step back and reconciling, like, what are our must haves and what are our nice to haves? Um, what's really important to us. And I think that that that's another area where like people ask me all the time, like, what should I prioritize, you know, in the early, in those days, especially like, should I spend more on digital marketing or PR or brand? Mm -hmm. And I'm always like, we can't prescribe that to anybody. It just depends on what your company is. And it also depends on what your strengths are as a founder too. Right, exactly. And so with bootstrapping, what were some of the things that you prioritized? I prioritized product. It was very important. Mm -hmm. um, we prioritized working with a design firm. We worked with a wonderful design agency called Stitch Design Company in South Carolina just a wonderful woman run. I knew I wanted our dollars to go towards women. So woman run agency in Charleston who helped me really crystallize the visual identity for the brand. Mm -hmm. And we worked with these incredible photographer, a, a photographer stylist to really think through and build out that like 
world once the brand was done too with me. Yeah. Um, and those were really the areas that we, we invested in. That's awesome. Yeah. I think a lot of, uh, you know, when it comes to bootstrapping, I think a lot of founders are conflicted with, do I hire an agency or should I just try to wing it on my own? Like, how can I save money? I mean, working with an agency can be really expensive. Um, so it's interesting that you prioritize that pretty early on. Do you think that that's like the best way to go these days or, you know, do, would you suggest otherwise? It depends on what people are watching. So I can't yeah. really speak to that. I think that people do look like people are discovering brands and entities on their phones and people's attention span is, you know, two seconds. Um, so I think that it is important to have, if you can have something that's striking, that is memorable. And that then usually means that there's a design aspect to it. But again, I mean, I think that like, it depends on the founder. Like I have a founder friend, she has a jewelry company and she's a designer herself. So mm -hmm. as the founder, she didn't spend much on design because she was really like, had such a good eye and she got a friend, a designer friend to execute on it, but she knew exactly what she wanted. Mm -hmm. And so that was one of the smallest kind of pieces of her puzzle. She put a lot more money into PR and, um, digital marketing and a few other things. So I think it just depends on, on your, as a founder, where your strengths are, or even experiences are. Yeah. And you have some really cool artists behind a lot of your designs now. What inspired you to have different artists behind different types of flavors? For us, we were really like bright. One of Brightland's like core ethos is to champion art and design. And so I've, I've always felt like our Brightland bottles are very much like a blank canvas. And so I really wanted to shine a spotlight and like celebrate art and celebrate these artists in some creative way. And so when our customers started asking for different flavored extra virgin olive oil, so people were like, I'd love to see a lemon olive oil or a basil olive oil. We said, okay, we're gonna launch with lemon because at the time it was the height of citrus season in LA, felt like the perfect thing to launch. and. I, I said, what, how cool would it be if we got an artist to create a special label for us? So what started as like a one kind of like a singular thing or a campaign ended up actually now we've worked with over six artists, um, anyone from like the Cartorialist and Marley Culver and BD Graft and like someone who I really looked up to when at, during my lawn home days was Peter Som. He's a fashion designer that we did a collaboration with at Lawn Comb. Um, when I was just, you know, I, I was like basically an intern and he, uh, to turn around and then to be able to collaborate on, uh, a bottle with him for our basil olive oil was just such a dream come true, but it's been a wonderful way to, to channel some of that creative firepower and also like showcase that the Brightland bottle doesn't have to be so prescriptive in terms of its label too. It's been a lot of fun. And with the different flavors, were the different flavors inspired by customer feedback or did you have a few yourself? I find it so fascinating, these different flavors of olive oil. I mean, when I think of olive oil and I think most people just think of, you know, extra virgin olive oil, you know, there's like not much to it. So when it comes to these different, really cool, innovative flavors, where did that come from? It was definitely customer feedback, but it was also... Yeah, it was us like talking with our farm partners, being excited about these flavors. I knew that I really wanted to do like a basil olive oil. And then we asked our customers and everyone was like, 
I want to see a basil olive oil and then I want to see a garlic olive oil. And garlic wasn't really on my, wasn't really on my radar. I was thinking people would be more excited about a rosemary, but everyone was more excited about a garlic first. And so we said, okay, let's, let's do that and see how it goes. That's awesome. So what were some of those early signs of success? Like how did you measure success when you first kind of launched? Um, and what was your launch strategy? I think that the like that kind of measure of success is ever changing. So I just don't think that it's something that you can kind of like do once and then keep and hold on to that. I think your definition of success is like ever changing and evolving, but in that like early days, it was really, are people purchasing? Do they come back and buy? I think that was really important to us, like that retention. It was, I used to get on the phone with customers and ask them what they thought, what they thought we could do better. Um, and our launch strategy was really focused around having other people tell our story. So like we, um, the day we launched, we were featured by the New York Times style section. And that was such a great like tea that it's kind of, it's called tea. It's the style magazine or whatever. And, um, that was really instrumental because it wasn't just us beating the drum beat over and over. It was someone else telling our story. Um, but I think like, you know, the most important thing that we looked at in those early days is once people buy, are they excited to come back? Absolutely. And so I know that you um, closed a seed round at the end of 2019. Talk to us about fundraising. What was your experience like and what were some of the challenges that you faced? Oh, it's awful. Fundraising was terrible. It was, um, yeah, I mean, I think that like, I think that it's very glamorized. And at the end of the day, like you're giving away a piece of your company. It's not something to be that excited about, but on the flip side, yes, you are getting some money that you can then like put to use in terms of hiring a team and like building your company. So in that instance, there is something like tangible and tactile about it. But I think it's kind of the media narrative is sort of messed up because it's very much like, how much did you raise? It should be sort of like, how much of your company did you kind of have to like, you know, give up to do this? Mm -hmm. um, so that in and of itself, I think like just having that mindset was interesting and kind of like, yeah, I'm glad I went into it with that mindset. And then, yeah, it was just really, um, it's a tough, it's a tough thing to do because you are talking to people who just may not understand, who aren't, may not be on the same page as you, who, um, you know, you have to, it's a numbers game. You're, you have to talk to a lot of people and it's tiring because it's taking up time that you're like, oh, well, I could be, you know, furthering the business or doing something to, kind of move the, push the envelope or push the ball forward. But then when you meet the people that make sense for you, then it clicks into place. But yeah, there was a lot of like recognitions of like realizations around privilege and being a woman of color and what that really meant in a space that is historically dominated by white people, especially white men. So um, it was a lot to grapple with, honestly. Yeah. Um, what advice do you have or what kind of takeaways do you have of ways that you were able to overcome some of those challenges? I think it was relying on other founders who had fundraised, honestly, like that was game changing. And then um, always having a kind of a mindset of abundance over scarcity was probably the other thing. Like, because if you're playing the scarcity game and feeling that, then the person on the other side can feel it too. Mm-hmm. So, um, that was really important. And then 
I think it's also, I mean, this is more of a thing that you should, like an entrepreneur should probably think about before they even set out to raise, but it's best to raise when you don't need to raise. Um, that's when you have more leverage. They can also tell when you're like, I don't know, desperate. Yeah. I, I like what you said about coming from a place of, um, you know, scarcity. I think that as an entrepreneur, you know, you're just looking at your numbers and you're burning more cash than you have. And you're like, you know, just, you definitely can easily come from a place of scarcity and kind of desperation and investors are trying to come from a place of making money. So they're not trying to dig you out of any hole. They're trying to make a lot of money. And so trying to position yourself as I'm building a company that's going to be a token of success for you and your portfolio is a completely different approach than, Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I'm running out of money and I need to make this happen. Oh, <laughs> Please yeah. help. <laughs> that's not even an option. No, not yep. even I'm running out of money, more of like, a, Oh, we really need this even mm -hmm. positioning it that way in terms of like, we need it to grow. Like they don't want to see that or we need it to figure something out is also not, like messaging that they love. It's more so of like a, here are the things we've done and we've figured this and this out in order to accelerate. Here's what we need. Right, exactly. Cool. So with hiring, how big is your team now? And what are some of the things you've learned about hiring a great team? It takes a lot longer than you think. I naively thought that it would be you know, when you put out a job post or, you know, kind of start looking that it would take four weeks, like a month. It's absolutely taken longer than that for almost every role. And um, I think we also have the luxury because we are a small team and I'm building this with a lot of intentionality and not just trying to like blitz scale it in any way. So we have capacity to be a bit more like thoughtful about, um, who we're bringing on, but you know, I can't even imagine like brands that say, Oh, we went from like 30 to 400 in a, a year or two. I just can't even imagine how you can be thoughtful. Like you just need to like pull, put, you know, kind of like have people come in. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think that it's such a work in progress and especially, you know, we hired a number of people during the pandemic and we never met them in person and I still haven't met them. Mm -hmm. And that has been such like another, like, you know, kind of interesting, interesting wrench to throw in the middle of all of it. <laughs> Definitely. And one of the things I find so interesting about your company is that you guys are the first olive oil brand and pantry item to be in a Nordstrom or Bloomingdale's, which is, you know, those are fashion retailers. So what made you think, hey, I'm just going to try to reach out to these department stores and see if they want to have, you know, an olive oil brand there. That's really unique and an interesting position. So can you kind of walk us through how those conversations went, what your idea was behind it, why you decided to go that direction? I always believing in zigging when other people are zagging or kind of going in a different direction. So to me, when I looked at like macro trends, it felt like we were seeing wellness kind of permeating everything we do and getting into food and looking at a brand like Moon Juice. I was really like, you know, if wellness and what you're kind of ingesting can be considered beauty then our products certainly can be. And so that was all the more of like an impetus to say, well, what are some avenues or channels that haven't been tapped into or thought about? And as we were kind of doing that exercise, 
you know, we got an email from Nordstrom and a couple months later from Bloomingdale's saying the same thing. This is how we're thinking about this. We'd love to work with you. Can we chat? And so it turned out to be a very like, kind of like aligned thinking and kind of the aligned timing too. Awesome. And you know, the majority of your business, as you mentioned before, is D to C. Um, how do you, you know, what advice do you have for entrepreneurs that are thinking about building a D to C brand? Yeah, it's really know the story that you want to tell on your website. Your, your website is basically your like storefront. So really understand the story that you want to tell. Um, the more kind of personal you can tell, the greater kind of, I think, resonance and customer loyalty you'll build. Mm -hmm. And then like kind of the nitty gritty, like make sure that it's, it makes sense economically, like shipping is expensive. So understanding, um, you know, what is your product? Like if you're shipping, I don't know, a bottle of hot sauce in a really expensive glass jar or like a very heavy glass jar, but you're charging $8 for your, your hot sauce, let's say, and, um, shipping is $20 how is that business, like, how does that work? And if customers ask for free shipping, how is that ever going to work? Mm -hmm. So really figuring that stuff out is just super, super important. And it's not sexy. It's not the fun stuff, but understanding shipping, I would say is one of the most important things you can do. Shipping, shipping soup to nuts, whether it's what kind of packaging are we using? What, like, how are we shipping? Who's packing and shipping? And then ultimately like what kind of carriers are we working with and how does that all back into our unit economics? Yeah. What are some of those difficult choices that you had to make with yours? I mean, you were shipping glass uh, bottles, right? With liquid. So how, how have you, you know, with your shipping, what are some of the decisions that you decided to make? I mean, one decision, one kind of like ask that we get from customers is can we do like a circular economy type of circular model where we then send back your, the bottles and then you refill them and send them to us. And as beautiful as an idea that it, as that is, that is incredibly expensive mm -hmm. for anyone involved. And so unfortunately as a small business, like that's just not an option for us right now. Right. And that's a very tough decision. I would love to do that because from an environmental standpoint and from a brand story standpoint, concept of like creating a circular model is so compelling, but it's not feasible. <laughs> and so as part of your journey in building Brightland, um, what are some other major challenges that you've come across that you didn't think that you would starting a company? So many things. I mean, it could be anything from, you know, I love to move quickly. And I think that that's part of our like, you know, secret sauce or success or whatever you want to call it. But it also has meant that things have like just dropped. Like I, you know, in the very, very early days, there was a label. We had this massive like label bottle issue where before we launched, I didn't test our labels on our bottles. And the week prior to launch, we realized that the labels and the bottles were completely not harmonious with each other. And I just assumed, I thought it's a label on a bottle. Like this should not be something crazy that we need to test, but it's so important to test every last little thing and triple check every last little thing. And, um, yeah, we've had a, like a number of kind of those stories and those lessons that we've learned along the way. So test everything is a piece test of advice, everything. but do it quickly. <laughs> right. Gotta hurry up. So what other tidbits of advice do you have 
that you've learned along the way in building a company? I mean, I block out the noise, so I don't spend too much time looking at what other people are doing, whether they're in your industry or not. Don't I don't spend too much time on Instagram. I just don't find... And again, these are like very personal, but I, I heard this from a couple other entrepreneurs I admire that like try to block out the noise as much as you can. Mm-hmm. And that has actually served me very well. And I would impart that on, on entrepreneurs because if you also like spend too much time on it, your own creativity and inspiration starts feeling zapped or mm-hmm. you like realize that you're taking inspiration maybe from like a couple like outside brands that already exist so, um, yeah, that I, I would say that's probably one of, one of my biggest pieces of advice. And then my other big piece of advice is when you feel like you're getting overwhelmed, just take one step forward at a time rather than like, look at the big picture or the big and be like, Oh my God, there's still so much <laughs> instead end up like zooming back in and being like, well, I'm just going to take one step and then another and another and it's pretty incredible. Like you can keep kind of at that point, you're like almost building momentum to start to jog. Right. It's kind of like just telling yourself, what's the one thing I can do today instead of yeah. by the end of the week or by the end of the month or quarter or year, you know, what's exactly. the one thing today that I can do yeah, exactly. to move the ball forward. So what's one of the things that you've learned about becoming a leader and a CEO? Empathy is so important. And I always ask my team members, like, how do you feel? How are you feeling? Mm-hmm. And I never thought that that was that powerful. Like, it's a very, I think I am an empath. So it's like almost, it's not as difficult for me to ask that. But I didn't, I didn't think too much about the response. I thought the response usually would be like, yeah, fine. But it was so much more than that. It's always so much more than that. And that has just been so powerful and humbling for me to recognize. Interesting. And what... You know, and when it comes to empathy and leadership, why else do you think it's important to have that quality? Because your team is everything and you are nothing without them. And being able to recognize that and celebrate them and be able to understand where, I mean, empathy is important for everything, like being able to understand where somebody else is coming from. Right. Um, and if you can do that for your team, like what a, that is such a, a, a service that you're doing for them and for the company. So if you could change anything about your journey so far, what would you change? Hmm. I don't think right now, I don't think I would change anything. Maybe that's something that I will feel differently about in the, in two, three years. <laughs> and what do you think most people don't know about building a company? That so much of it is like figuring out business insurance and like, signing up for payroll and like payroll taxes and sales tax in different states. And like what is shown on Instagram is like, oh, we're going to be on a shoot today. Or I was featured by Martha Stewart today. Or, you know, oh my God, like Reese Witherspoon's using Brightland. Like that's what people see. Mm -hmm. It is not that. That is like (laughs) 0.5%. That's a good percentage. And I think that's pretty accurate. (laughs) Yeah, it's all the other stuff no one really talks about, right? The insurance, taxes, all that fun stuff that really boggles you down. Um, That is the key part of, you know, kind of running a a business. Exactly. That's 
like the the foundational elements. <laughs> right. Foundation. Do you have any other advice for building a brand or any of the aspiring entrepreneurs tuning in? Um, I'd love to hear any final, you know, advice there. And then also your grand vision for Brightland. What can we expect? What's coming next? I think final words would be to surround yourself, even like rather than saying, oh, I want to become friends with like 10 founders, maybe become deep friends with just two ones that you can call as you're on your entrepreneurial journey if they're kind of in similar stages as you, especially because then you can call them on days that you're just feeling like super low and have an authentic conversation rather than having like 10, you know, kind of superficial relationships where you're just like, everything's great. We're, we're great. We're all great. Um, that would be one piece of advice. And then in terms of Brightland, we're actually, you know, depending on when this podcast runs, but you know, today is the last day of March next Tuesday, April 6th, we are launching a new category and actually a category that technically doesn't really exist out there. It's um, a kitchen candle. So we're launching a Brightland like kitchen candle that's made with olive oil and has really incredible fragrance notes um, like black pepper and pink pepper and neroli and vetiver. And we're so excited about it and can't wait for people to experience it. So that's a fun foray for us. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to check it out. Thanks so much for um, being on the show. It was awesome hearing your story and thanks so much for your time. Of course. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.